I ended up finally getting into the Department of Justice. And back then, security was maybe one, two, three, four, five, maybe one, zero, 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 if it even had a password. So uh, in my defense, I, I must say, I didn't think it was actually illegal since it was so absolutely easy to get into. <laughs> but uh, after a while, after about two and a half weeks of being in that particular system, I had two gentlemen in dark suits uh, standing behind me and they must have been as surprised by me as I was by them because <laughs> they, I'm, I'm sure they didn't expect, you know, a, a little girl, a little kid doing all of this type of stuff. So I got in a bit of trouble and for a while, for almost eight years, I couldn't uh, use a computer system or any sort of connected gaming console. From Cobalt Headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my good friend and colleague, Chris Kubeka. Chris is the founder and CEO of Hypasec. Previously, she established and led the network and security operations privacy, intelligence, and information protection group for Aramco Overseas, part of Saudi Aramco. Passionate about offensive, defensive, and new methods of exploitation in IT, IoT, ICS, and embedded systems, Chris's deep technical knowledge stems from childhood misadventures and professionally in Air Mobility Command and Space Command, serving honorably in the U.S. Air Force. The author of several books, Kubeka is also a military veteran of multiple humanitarian and combat missions as aircrew with degrees in information technology and computer science. Based in Northern Europe, she is an advisor and subject matter expert to several governments and industries on cybersecurity and incident response for cyber warfare and recognized expertise in financial oil and gas, water and nuclear industry digital security. I met Chris in sunny Southern California, where we both spoke together on a panel at Absa Cali in 2018. And if I recall correctly, Chris and I were the only two in the group who were for doing a Monty Python skit. Chris, welcome to our podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is great. <sighs> okay, Chris, I like to start at the beginning. And so I really want to hear about this whole Department of Justice, FBI, coming after you <laughs> as a 10-year-old in school. What happened? I'm just, I'm so fascinated. Uh, well, I, uh, I was lucky to have gone to a rather unusual school that had just gotten a lot of funding to build out a full kind of computer lab for the library section. And I had already begun uh, doing a lot of things on computer systems because of my mother. She was a big influence in that. It uh, stemmed from the necessity of the fact that she was a single mom. She was still kind of new to the mainland U.S., so her support structure was not as uh, uh, big as many other uh, single moms sometimes have, and so I ended up going into work a lot with her uh, from the time that she first started uh, di at Digital Corporation and then until she eventually became a robotics programmer for assembly line car manufacturing. So unfortunately, I, as a kid, uh, you're not always emotionally mature when you uh, also have certain technical skills. And so when I was 10, I did a series of war dialing attacks 
And this was with these old fashioned modems that used to make these lovely sounds when you would connect and you would have to put a phone on the receiver to do so pre-internet. And because we're at a library, we were hooked into uh, those pre-internet networks. And what had happened was I ended up finally getting into the Department of Justice. And back then, security was maybe one, two, three, four, five, maybe one zero, 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 if it even had a password. So uh, in my defense, I, I must say, I didn't think it was actually illegal since it was so absolutely easy to get into. <laughs> but uh, after a while, after about two and a half weeks of being in that particular system, I had two gentlemen in dark suits uh, standing behind me, and they must have been as surprised by me as I was by them, because <laughs> they, I'm, I'm sure they didn't expect you know, a, a little girl, a little kid, doing all of this type of stuff. So I got in a bit of trouble, and for a while, for almost eight years, I couldn't uh, use a computer system or any sort of connected gaming console. So I was highly restricted from these types of things. But as a benefit, though, the two benefits, I had to take uh, typing courses instead. So now I can text like a teenager. So that's okay. <laughs> uh, and secondary to that, I also joined JROTC pretty early on uh, when I was about 12 and started getting into learning how to basically mature myself because it's one thing that even junior military tries to do is to instill a certain amount of discipline and also responsibility as you build yourself up in the ranks. And um, I'm actually quite thankful for that uh, experience. So that's uh, it's kind of how I got started with all of this kind of stuff. A uh, quote, not quote unquote a script kitty because it was a bit before then, but uh, a war dialer. It's funny that uh, I deal a lot with cyber warfare <laughs> now. But yeah, that's how I got started. It's incredible. I think to myself, I mentioned to you uh, as we were preparing for today's recording that when I met you, every time you would share a story with us, I was just like blown away. I was like, who is this person? This person is coming out of like a graphic novel. This person is a real life superhero. And I am so happy to hear you share with our listeners some of what I consider basically to be like your origin story. Um, I understand that your part of your family was in intelligence. Your great grandfather oh, yeah. taught you the Caesar cipher before yeah. first grade. So you could write notes. I'm very inspired by that and, and fully intend to teach my four-year-old that in a couple of years. I understand you hung out with your mom at work, changing hard drives, programming games out of magazines. And it's so interesting to me to hear you say today that there was sort of like this, I don't know, like, I, I've heard you use the term maturity to describe it. Um, keeping in line with my graphic novel idea, I'll call it like your coming of age and your like moral forming. Like I feel like there is this total alternative parallel universe life that could have been like Chris Kubeka without JROTC. Like, and that's just... That's just fascinating to me. Okay, we have a limited amount of time and there's so much good stuff to talk about. I would really like to hear about what was it like after Saudi Aramco was hit by Shamoon 
And then the Aramco family called you up and was like, hey, Chris, can you help us out? What was that about? Uh, well, it was uh, it was very strange because I never applied to the Aramco family. Quite frankly, uh, I'm, I'm a lady, Chris, so I didn't think that uh, such things were possible. However, uh, after their attack, they had been scrambling around looking for people. Uh, they had no good incident response plans or business continuity plans dealing with a, a major cyber attack like this. And it was a bit of a shame because that was coupled with the fact that they had done this big digital transfer information and had moved off of paper to digital uh, for two reasons, for modernization, but also, unfortunately, a couple of the uh, physical compounds in Saudi Arabia have come under attack before. So if you have paperwork, it can go all over the place if there's some sort of explosive. But what that also meant was they didn't even have on paper uh, different employee rosters of people to contact. And so they began looking around and searching and like most companies in this type of chaotic situation, uh, they had first tried to basically pick out anybody in LinkedIn that had a security background. And then I was contacted just out of the blue. I was coming back from vacation uh, in Tanzania and I was in Istanbul, the airport hoping that I could get into the lounge because A, it was a long trip and B, the lounge there is fantastic if you can get into it. And I was in a great mood. And I was like, oh, somebody's calling me. I don't usually answer my phone in roaming, but you know what? Coming off vacation, let's do this. And it turned out to be a recruiter for them. And they asked me a few questions. They said, hey, we'd like you to uh, uh, set up uh, security for us and reestablish uh, business operations internationally. And at first, I thought it was kind of a bit of a scam call because it was out of the blue. And uh, then he asked for my price and I stuck my finger in the air and I picked a price and he goes, listen, we'll get back to you. So then shortly thereafter, they got back to me and said, listen, we've convened the board and we've met your price and we've raised it up by 20%. And it was at this time that I realized a couple of things. That was the most powerful board in the world that had met specifically to discuss me, to bring me on board. So my mind was kind of blown about this whole thing. Uh, and secondly, uh, because I know that I have a bit of a deeper voice, I wanted to make sure that they knew that I was a lady Chris, not, you know, a, a boy Chris. So uh, they're like, yeah, 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 we, we, we definitely want you. And I go, well, listen, I, I started a brand new job. So, you know, I, I don't know how available I'm going to be because of this. And they're like, don't say no, just say maybe. And so in between the time, because uh, they also had a... <laughs> Funny enough, a problem where their uh, middleware, their SAP systems, uh, they couldn't actually print out an employment contract. So um, they kind of brought me remotely on board to uh, start handling some of the situations. And then also before I started for my first day, their Twitter account was taken over by someone called the Jester, which uh, started to cause some additional uh, market fluctuations in the oil market, which is not particularly what you want. And so I uh, went ahead and we did an account take back and then um, came into uh, The Hague and got started. And uh, it was definitely a, a whirlwind because there were a lot of things that had to be considered. 
reconnecting everything. Uh, a lot of people, because they had never had cybersecurity awareness training prior to this, they were like, man, I don't want to be on a computer again because I, I don't want to be the cause of something. Uh, I've never had, you know, a, a situation where you go in and employees actually don't want to work on their computer systems. So uh, it, it was very interesting, very chaotic, uh, but very fun at the same time, because anytime you get to build up teams and it's a space where it's uh, never been done before, you're like, wow, you know, I don't know what motherhood feels like, but I think I got a little tiny taste of at least that portion of it. Uh, so it was a, was a life-changing experience. That's so cool. I have two observations. Observation number one, for our listeners who may or may not be aware, Saudi Aramco last year was the world's most profitable company, surpassing the earnings of companies like Apple or JP Morgan Chase. The other thing to note is that over the past few years, at any given time, Saudi Aramco has been the world's largest oil company, accounting for 10 to 25% of global production of oil worldwide. And when I think about sort of the, like, when I take a step back and I say like, okay, why does information security matter? Why does security matter? Security matters because you have something of value that we're trying to protect. And to me, this is like enormous value. The other, the other observation that I have, Chris, is that you saw this ball of very big important chaos and you ran toward it which i think is really really cool and and thank you so much for for sharing that with us the next part of kind of your life that i'd love to to chat with you about is with regards to your time in the u.s air force so i understand that you were recruited by the u.s air force at age 18 you were issued a moral waiver i'm so curious to what, like <laughs> Exactly is a moral waiver. So the U.S. Air Force was like, okay, here's this incredible person. She's in JROTC at this point. I assume you were like in ROTC, and and then and then they were like, and she's been, and I don't know the correct technical terms to use for this, but she's been convicted of a crime for eight years. She's been not allowed to access computing systems. You know, her her childhood Atari game was taken away from her. What is a moral waiver, and how did the U.S. Air Force? approach this? Uh, well, they really wanted me to come on board. And so I had to go through an extra interview process. And it just so happened that the interviewer, because I was first going into aviation, was a pilot. And so we chatted for probably a good hour about a whole bunch of different stuff. And it was actually a rather casual conversation. And then at the end, he's like, I think you're good people. I'm granting the moral waiver welcome on board. And I was like, awesome. Cause it's, it's something that, you know, given the opportunity of, uh, their main recruitment methods were very simple. Do you like to travel? Yes. Do you like to fly? Yes. All right. Would you like this job? And on the side, you can also do computer and networking as well. And I was like, Hey, this is like the best of both worlds. So, yeah. Cool. And then you were in us air force Space Command, working yes. at a secret facility. I'm curious to know what you can tell us about Space Command. I don't really understand this whole Space Command thing. To me, it seems like out of a movie. And yet, I've met you in real life. I know that you are, in fact, a real-life person and not a character out of a graphic novel. What's up with Space Command? 
Well, the, there's a lot of different reasons for Space Command, uh, one of which uh, we, uh, at least in the United States, we want to make sure that our adversaries or some sort of uh, fragment group doesn't detonate a nuclear weapon, for example. And so we used uh, infrared technology to view the world, at least our part of the world, and then offer guidance if we thought that something was about to go on. And in addition to that, uh, my job was for plans and implementations of telecommunications and command and control systems, which also handled various different types of data that would then be disseminated to our intelligence community and then uh, other parts of the military services and then our allies. Very cool. I understand you flew a vehicle called a C-5 Galaxy. Can you tell me a little bit more about this particular, is it even appropriate to call it a plane or is it a <laughs> shuttle? Is it a rocket ship? Like what is this C-5 Galaxy that you speak of? Well, it's it's my favorite plane, obviously. I'm a little biased. And it is the largest aircraft in the U.S. military's inventory. It's as tall as six stories high from the ground to the top of the tail. It's as long as a football field inside. Uh, it can carry, it set the record before during the Vietnam War, where they were rescuing um, a bunch of children from an orphanage uh, that over 600 passengers at the time uh, actually uh, took off in the aircraft. Uh, because the size of it, right, to uh, evacuate those children. And I had a very interesting position where I was the loadmaster, and I did all the weight and balance calculation as well as the, uh, I was the ground commander. The pilot's the one in the air. It's my baby on the ground. And also a lot of the physical security and then uh, supervising any uh, loading and offloading. So we used to load up other planes, tanks, semi-trucks, uh, Anything and everything you can possibly think of, uh, because it's such a huge aircraft, but it, it, it's uh, so well built that they want to keep it going for the Air Force until the year 2040, and it was first made in the 1960s. Wow. That is just, I'm trying to picture in my mind a six-story building, replace that with an airplane. <laughs> um <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's just mind-boggling. Chris, you are an author, a several-time author. Most recently, you've been writing about open-source intelligence. Um, and I understand you also do a lot of work protecting critical infrastructure. Um, and I'm curious to know, how would you describe the state of affairs when it comes to the protection of critical infrastructure around the world? And what do you think is going to happen with all of these IoT devices in the next five to 10 years from a security perspective? What, what's happening and what's going to happen and what needs to be done? Well, uh, one of the, uh, there's several challenges when it comes to critical infrastructure and the security of them. Uh, one of them is uh, the majority of the assets are actually privately owned. So regulation and laws can only go so far uh, pushing on a private company to say, this is what you must do and this is what you should do and so forth. Um, we're also faced with the challenge that our modern world is built upon all of this uh, critical infrastructure. I like 
all of our viewers like clean water, electricity. I just came back from South Africa where we were at maximum what they call load shedding. So we have barely any electricity. Uh, the infrastructure was not the greatest uh, in terms of other areas. And I've seen the effect that that has on, for example, the unemployment market and the labor market, because if, if you can't do business in a country, then you're going to do business elsewhere. So it isn't just the we all like the modern world, but we also like to be employed. And these particular factors are important. Now, in as far as Internet of Things, um, one of the challenges is business drivers. You want information, you want data, but you shouldn't necessarily just plug everything into the Internet and uh, a look at both the privacy and security of those devices is paramount. I, last month, I was uh, speaking at a United Nations event in Berlin uh, with Google about this uh, particular problem because we've got very little regulation on these things. A lot of these uh, things, just like anyone else, you're looking for a good deal. So is a business looking for a good deal to save money on technology. So what happens is a lot of the manufacturers, they ship these products with uh, known vulnerable libraries, hardware that can't be patched or updated, or they've never even heard of the secure development life cycle. And if we're putting these things into the things that keep our modern world going, that's a, that's a serious, serious risk for all of us. Yep. Yeah. I myself, I won't even sort of allow any smart devices in my home <laughs> beyond, you know, I have some ring cameras on the outside of my home. I'm okay with that. Um, but I'm actually not at all interested in any sort of anything in my home, actually, that that is, is an IoT device, despite, you know, the conveniences, um, because I'm just like, at this point, I'm just sketched out. I just like don't. I think it's worth the risk. Not yet. And it's it's very interesting to to see how how that's going to go. I'm wondering if you would sort of compare and contrast for us your experiences as a person, as a security professional in the US and Europe and the Middle East. How would you describe your experiences in these various locations? I know that, you know, your family comes from Puerto Rico. You've been all over the world. How is it that you decided to settle in Northern Europe? And which, you know, what are what are some of your things that you've liked about living in different places in the world? And what are some of the things that maybe you haven't liked so much about living in different places in the world? Uh, well, one of uh, there, there were two primary reasons why I thought that Europe was a great idea uh, at the time, because I've lived here for quite some time now. Um, my work-life balance was not very good in the United States. It was just work, work, work. And I made a decision when I woke myself up after hitting myself on a screen in a server closet uh, after working 32 hours. And my employer at the time uh, would pay for uh, all of my cleaning, all of my takeout food, things like that, because I had zero time in between my work schedule. And that was a bit too extreme. And I started reading about Europe and the work-life balance, especially in Northern Europe. Uh, another thing that was a bit frustrating for me is I'm a military veteran, but in the United States, I don't have equal rights. And that's a bit disturbing 
still that uh, that's that's an issue. And here in the Netherlands, where I live, it's written in the Constitution that women have equal rights. And so I quite enjoyed that with the work life balance. And I've enjoyed for the most part living here. I, I can't recommend the weather. The weather is not very good. Uh, but I moved here a little over 15 years ago and things changed during that time frame. So I'm talking to a woman in a leadership position that when I lived in the US, I didn't think was possible in the United States. So um, I, I have seen how things have progressed and changed in uh, the correct direction. And I'm very, very pleased with that. Uh, when it comes to the Middle East, Saudi Aramco is uh, a bit of a unique uh, organization within Saudi uh, where uh, they're trying to look for the people who are uh, good. Uh, they've got uh, certain goals and their goal isn't to um, be say a restrictive company, but their goal is to keep moving and make profit. Another uh, observation that I made was uh, in the Middle East, there are more women who are in uh, technology and software development than there are even in Europe or the United States. So the vast majority of women who are developers, most people are actually women. Uh, there are more women, uh, for example, even in Iran, uh, there are more women uh, doing these types of positions than men. So it was... Uh, a huge contrast to see that because in the West, we talk a lot about how can we get women into STEM and in the Middle East, they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. They're already here. Oh my God. Yeah. Incredible. That is so eye opening. I'm actually literally speechless um, because that is such a, such a fascinating surprise to me that it sounds like in the Middle East, there is such a, such a focus on profits and progress that something like your body parts wouldn't like come into play and they just want the yeah. best people. They yeah. just want the best people for the job. That's, that's so cool. Um, Chris, I imagine that you might speak multiple languages. How many languages do you speak? Well, uh, I speak English, uh, ik spreek Nederlands, but I'm not fluent, uh, so Dutch, uh, but to a fairly good level. Uh, I speak uh, some Mandarin Chinese. I had to study it uh, when I actually first arrived here to uh, work on several uh, digital investigations. Um, I speak Spanglish, which is pretty normal for a lot of Puerto Ricans. Um, and familiarity with uh, Russian and Ukrainian because I had to uh, learn Russian for space commands. Uh, certain industries have certain languages. If you're in aviation, you have to speak English. If you deal with space, you have to speak Russian. Wow. Do you have a favorite way to learn a language? Uh, well, yeah, I do, actually, because I was speaking to somebody about this uh, a week or so ago. Um, there's this company called Earworms, and what they do is they get you familiar with the language with music. So you start picking up the beat and the cadence, plus you're, you're listening to a song, and you just ease into it. And I've, I've, uh, I feel that music uh, helps with a lot of different things, from productivity to also dealing with uh, learning a new language. So I, I rather like that particular method. And then once you have that down, boom, you start learning more and more and more. Cool. Chris, can you tell me about one or two of your favorite 
proudest moments in your career? Um, I think that one of my proudest moments was uh, when uh, it was down to me and my team to do the final uh, reconnection of Saudi Aramco and to uh, connect all of the international offices to Saudi Arabia again. Uh, so that was, uh, if it hadn't been for still a Saudi company, we would have had champagne. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Women developers, no champagne. No champagne. (laughs) The The United States and Europe, please take note. And Chris, finally, do you have any advice for our listeners? Um, folks in InfoSec, folks outside of InfoSec, I will ask you for your advice for information security professionals, and I will also ask you for your advice in general, which is perhaps the broadest question I could possibly (laughs) ask you. Well, um, I think one of the best pieces of advice is... um, Don't listen to naysayers, especially yourself, because I think many times uh, we tell ourselves we can't do certain things. Uh, You can do anything you set your mind to. Uh, I had no idea growing up where uh, I was struggling with my mom, who barely had any, you know, when she started out, she... We were on food stamps. We lived in uh, the projects in the Washington, D.C. area, which were very rough. And I didn't imagine myself... uh, doing what I do right now and being successful at it. And if I had listened to those voices in my head or to the people around me, uh, then I would have never accomplished even a minuscule amount of what I've been able to and still try to continue to accomplish. Uh, So uh, that's a big piece of advice. Um, Another one is try security and Privacy are, are rather intertwined, but when you're talking about it to people, think about the uh, relevant risk factors because a fire alarm malfunctioning in your house uh, when there's no fire is not a big deal. If it's with a nuclear power plant and it's an IoT device, that's going to make the news. So you have to understand the relevant risk when you're talking about security and privacy is intertwined with that. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. I am so happy uh, to see your face. We are on a video call, so I get to see you. And I I can't wait until the next time when we'll see each other in real life. And I don't know when that will be, but whenever it is, I can't wait for it. Yes, agree. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Awesome. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt.io, a pen testing as a service company. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you enjoy podcasts. And don't forget to say hello. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.